The Animation Podcast, July 7th, 2008. The Animation Podcast is sponsored by AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. Sign up for their free monthly newsletter for animation tips, student profiles, and access to my upcoming Animation Mentor exclusive animation podcast at AnimationMentor.com. Hey everybody, this is Clay Cadis. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Animation Podcast. This is a podcast where I interview people in animation who inspire me, and then I share those conversations with you. This month's show is the conclusion of my interview with Ken Duncan, who you may know as the animator of Meg and Hercules and Jane and Tarzan. He also worked at DreamWorks on Shark Tale, and now he's running his own studio, Duncan Studio, which is working on several upcoming projects. Keep listening after the interview ends because I'm doing something I haven't done before and I'm giving a preview of next month's guest, so you'll hear why at the end. As I mentioned in the last show, I met with Ken and recorded twice, and this show is that second meeting. So, here we go. Well, I I listened to some of our our last interview. You'd like to retake a bunch of stuff. Yeah, uh, let's start over. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just, uh, we talked a lot about acting and uh, kind of uh, the whole Boleslavsky yeah, what is acting? Animation, the art of exaggeration, caricature, caricaturing reality. Yeah, sweet. so it's cool to observe reality and see. You know, actually, I was talking to you earlier today about. Yeah, I should have recorded at lunch. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it's far more casual. Just even even thinking of people at the studio and imagining even different personalities that you knew within the studio. Everybody was a little different, and uh, you could even take some of the characters that you worked with. And made them personalities within a film. Yeah. Even imagining different ways they move or their walks or their 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 reaction to events. Everybody has a different reaction, so that makes them unique personalities. So so it's cool to observe everything around, of, of course, and we see talk- if there's anything like a little bit of a golden nugget to put to, into your animation from what you can see. Yeah, we talked a lot about, too. <laughs> Let's just catch up everyone on our lunch. <laughs> but uh, we talked a lot about just... Um, not just trying to make a character look like it's moving well, but having some sort of thought. Moving, f- moving for a reason. Yeah. And you know, uh, it's it's easy, especially with the computer, to move something from A to B. I mean, you can set a couple of keys and let the computer, you know, move stuff around. But, uh, you know, the question is, should the thing, should the character move at all? You know, maybe it's a moment where a character doesn't move at all, or that when they do move, has a certain humor. So what, how do you define humor? And is it a certain timing? Is it the poses? It's it's obviously a combination of both. And for me, a lot of times things are funny when they're totally unexpected. They're, so if you set your audience up so that they think a character is going to behave one way, and you sort of uh, have them behave in a different way than than they even expect, and it can be humorous. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe we can uh, talk about like the term of texture and what. How do you think of texture? Because I don't know if uh, texture. I don't know. I think of it. I would always think of animation in musical terms, you know. If you think of music, you know, there's certain rhythms and beats and it's it's not all the same through the whole you know, a song doesn't repeat itself constantly over and over again. Um I can't sing, so I'm not going to sing anything, but <laughs> whenever I listen to even the dialogue that I'm going to animate, I actually just try to listen to the rhythm of it. If somebody's talking like this, and they have a certain uh, certain rhythm and texture to their dialogue. So the reason that they're talking in a certain way generally is 
it's based on what they're thinking at any given time, right? You're communicating when you speak. So what's what's your psychological state? If you're nervous, you know, and you're being interviewed, then maybe you're going to be a little bit more careful in what you're saying and things like that. So it, it, it affects your speech rhythm. So I, I always try to figure out what's a character's rhythm in their dialogue So and then what is their, their thought process and then try to imagine animating things with a certain rhythm that wasn't always the same. So there are moments, of course, where the character slows up and thinks, then there's some spurts of energy and accents with dialogue. A lot of the times vowels, of course, are the accents and dialogue, but you don't want to accent everything the same. You want to find one moment where it's a stronger accent in the way they're thinking about things. So by mixing it up, you get texture. Mm-hmm. By, by thinking what's unique about this scene, you know, you can have texture within the whole film. You've got a certain character that's rhythmically like monochromatic or, or a monotone. You know, it's their beats are kind of like, you know, beat, 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 you know, for a lot, a lot of the film. And then all of a sudden there's a sequence where they're kind of more sporadic and more intense. So all of a sudden within the context of the film, their performance is getting a little texture there. Mm-hmm. So it's not just texture within each scene and doing the same texture in each scene. And then it becomes redundant over the process of the f- film. So it's it's really it, what's so cool about film making or feature films is, and if you're doing a character, is really analyzing the whole film and you know really trying to pinpoint a certain moment in the film where it's going to be really important to communicate an idea to the audience, and then is that going to be like a really slow, like how is that moment different from the rest of the film for the character, mm-hmm. and then how do you animate that a little bit differently, or, and yet unique to that character? So it's I don't know if I've yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, this what we're talking about kind of makes me want to ask two different questions. So I'll go to the first one first. The other one is just because it seems like the texture across a whole movie that really applied to like Jane in Tarzan. Yeah. I mean, um, that was we'll come back years. to that. Yeah. Well, that was quite a few years ago. But. Yeah. But um, the, the other concept of um, you've worked in a lot of situations where you've had supervising animators or sequence supervisors or maybe no supervisors, and if in an ideal world, what would you propose as the good setup for? For me? Yeah. You know, everybody has a different way of working, and every studio has a different way of working. Personally, I love the idea of an animator taking on a character or maybe two characters, but really being in control of that personality within the whole film. Uh, on Shark Tale, we were sequence supervisors, but mm-hmm. I, I tended to get the sequences with the Renee Zellweger character. So I at least tried to focus on a character. And then within the same sequence, if I had other characters, I would have somebody else in my unit do the other character. So we would sort of play off each other. Mm-hmm. So it was close to, you know, having uh, each animator control a character. Uh, I've been in situations where the on a feature film where every animator does every character, does everything in the scene, and there's really no rhyme or reason to what they're doing. And to me... It, it's productive. It, it, it actually, you're able to get the film done on schedule. It makes production people very happy. But in the end, I, I think the film suffers because then you don't have a focused personality or focused characters reacting to each other. So the films are somewhat lacking uh, in entertainment and getting across the story that was supposed to be communicated. So in the end, I don't think they're successful films. Uh, but that's just my own experience. I, I can't say I've worked in every studio. So I do feel that there are films that have sequence supervisors, but I, there's there's sort of a 
there's obviously going to be animators that are, are very good at a certain type of character and mm-hmm. just through uh, osmosis or whatever they they ended up uh, animating a lot of that character and it, it ends up being a better character for it so then you get animators that are great at action so maybe they're not actually hooked up to a specific character but they get sequences that are action oriented sequences mm-hmm. you know and then you get guys that are only good at sort of I don't know, funny uh, scenes which are physically active for a character and it's funny animation. So they, they put on a specific character that has a lot of humorous body language. So there's a way of casting people. Not everybody's into this, you know, method acting or, or mm-hmm. wants to even do one character. Somebody wants to maybe touch a bit of every character, but it's still good if it's supervised by, by a supervisor that's controlling the, the performance. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really a mixture depending on, on where the production's at and, uh, what the sequences are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's kind of maybe a little boring for you to go through your career, but the last time we sat and talked, we kind of ended up uh, after Pocahontas and you went from Pocahontas straight to Hercules, right? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. That's when Jeffrey had just left and set up DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of us were going over there and seeing what was going on over there. And for me personally, they were doing Prince of Egypt, and although it looked creatively really, really cool, a lot of cool artwork, we had just finished Pocahontas, which was semi-realistic style of animation. And uh, during that film, a lot of us wished to to animate something a little bit more cartoon or a little bit looser. So, you know, we saw what John and Ron were doing with Hercules, and um, it just looked like a lot of fun to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, again, oh, it's a different film. It's a different style. So it'd be a challenge to try and figure out sort of a, a an animation style to suit it rather than just doing what we had just done in Pocahontas. And, so, uh, so I decided to work on Hercules. And did you know at that time that you were going to animate Meg? No, I think I was going to animate Nessus, who is oh. the, the Minotaur, Centaur? What, what is it? Half Cent- horse, half, half Centaur, man, yeah. Centaur. And Chris Bailey ended up doing that, right? Yeah. yeah. Duncan Marjorie, Marjorie Banks was doing Meg, and he actually ended up leaving the production. So I think they just thought, replace one Duncan with another. So <laughs> I, I got <laughs> so I got Meg, and uh, and it was actually one of the funnest experiences for me as mm-hmm. far as animation. And you uh, had you ever animated a, like a female heroine character well, before? Yeah, I think when I was at, Luth, I had animated a character in one of those films. It was actually two of their films, mm-hmm. char- female characters. I was always sort of sketching female characters and doing doodles and drawings. Mm-hmm. So even at Disney, I don't think... Oh, I had worked on Belle. That's right. Oh, okay. I had worked on Belle. So I, I had done a female character. So you felt fairly comfortable yeah, in, I think in approaching so. that? Yeah, and it's and then it becomes a challenge of how do you do something maybe a little unique, so... And of course, the Gerald Scarf style was unique. And I think when people saw the screenings, uh, initially they they really were turned off by the character a little bit because she was sort of abrasive. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was kind of a cool challenge to find a way to make her somewhat appealing, and that she's being abrasive for a particular reason. You know, she's sort of yeah, she seems like someone who's jaded by people in her life, and and again, in people in real life, a lot of people that are somewhat. In a shell, there's there's something emotional that happened to them earlier in their life, and they're sort of not willing to trust other people. So that's kind of where she was at. She was at a point where she wasn't trusting people. And if you look at sort of the theme of the whole film, 
Philoctetes was on his own island, sort of also feeling very alone. It seemed like a lot of people that had made had higher hopes at one time, and they they were um, jaded. And mm-hmm. sort of Hercules is a character that kind of sort of brings them together and, right. and resurrects their sort of hope, which is kind of a cool theme. Yeah, yeah. Even if the directors don't communicate a theme, it's good to figure out maybe. I remember reading one actress that talked about that. You know, she would work on films, and a director wouldn't necessarily verbalize exactly what his what he was trying to do with the film, but she would find her own idea behind the character mm-hmm. so that it kind of made it real for herself. And if it came off as being real, it didn't matter how she approached it. Or, right. So she would find her own sort of themes and ideas for the characters. I don't know how much you want to get into like Meg or, or the production of Hercules, but people really love hearing stories behind yeah. the productions. Um, yeah. I, I remember at, at one point someone accused you of being kind of a, a bee animator. Oh, really? Yeah. I've maybe forgotten. And uh, I was just wondering if, if you re- if you remember that and if, uh, if something like that just pushes you to kind of throw it back in their Depends face. Depends who it's coming from, you know. Yeah. If if it's coming from an experienced animator, it really would affect you and right. make you analyze. Well, what was cool about that time of Disney, it was, it was that idea of getting better. And uh, when I arrived at the studio, you had guys like Glenn and Andreas, et cetera. So you knew, you know, that the bar was pretty darn high. Mm-hmm. And it's always that idea that you never arrive. You never kind of get to the pinnacle. You're always striving to to learn more and do do new stuff. So, yeah, if you get any criticism like that, you maybe try to analyze. Maybe they're right. Maybe there's there's a reason behind it. And maybe you're becoming redundant or you're doing the same sort of stuff. And so you got to challenge yourself. Yeah, or maybe you just haven't done enough work to show that you really are. Exactly. Well, you know, and I've talked about all the Stanislavski-type stuff and I was always trying to find a way to use that material, you know, a way to analyze stuff and bring something unique and all that. Uh, and if you're if you're on a character under somebody, another supervisor, uh, you don't necessarily get a chance to to experiment with some of those ideas. So perhaps you know nothing had sort of formulated yet as mm-hmm. far as what what could be done. So getting getting a character like Meg to me was was really amazing. I mean, because it was a, a major character. She had some, she actually, a lot of female characters to me in the films are great because they have some dimension to them. They're not quite, or they shouldn't be thought of as one note characters. So, I mean, there's a character that had a lot of conflict going on with her. So, and yet you want to have it be somewhat dramatic, but also really entertaining and find humorous parts to her and stuff. So it's funny because being a supervisor at different studios meant different things that some studios it meant just how much footage you put out or maybe you'd be training one other person. But at Disney, it really was about a lot of different things. It was the quality of your work. Of course, doing 2D, a lot of it was your drawing and your mm-hmm. obviously your animation, but also managing a team of animators, not only supervising their work, but also being able to output animation yourself. Did you find that you did uh, the majority of the animation on the character? Was that possible? Uh, I can't. I usually would do, I think, 25% or 30% of a character mm-hmm. in the end. Um, you know, and of course I got, I was in a position to choose some of the better scenes, of course. Mm-hmm. But I, at the same time, I would also try to do, do stuff that was maybe technically a bit complicated or locomotion of the character might be a bit complicated. So, um, so it wouldn't, you know, 
so I could sort of ex- explore how yeah. their their body language. Yeah, and went. you were on that film pretty early, right? Yeah. So you there was gotta... about six, seven of us anima- uh, animation supervisors, uh-huh. including I think Chris Bailey was on, Andreas, Nick Ranieri, uh, Eric Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, all great guys, and everybody having a different style. It's it's a great way to learn, you know, is is to work on a film with them and see how they approach their characters. But I really enjoyed working with John and Ron on that because they would bring you into the process when they were workbooking or storyboarding or recording sessions. So if you go to the recording sessions, they would you would hear them directing, of course, the actor, and I would write notes. So you really got their point of view on who the personality was mm-hmm. as they were directing the actress. And they would allow you to sort of, you know, if you thought, you know, there, there was another idea to things that would allow you to come up with something and they might allow you to try it or they might not because mm-hmm. they were pretty, they were pretty cool about knowing what they wanted to say with the film. So, um, it's great to work with strong directors that, that aren't sort of waffling and yeah. Yeah. trying to find Because I was, I was going to ask you about, like, I've never animated any, um, musical numbers like singing or anything like that but i imagine they brought a lot of information to you like this is how we want this sequence to feel yeah um, but is it is, it, well, di- is that, it different animating a song um i mean do you have to get into like well, it gets into this, the whole rhythm thing again but this kind of 50s musical mindset of oh, this is how the character is going to move differently in this yeah what was cool about her song was it was about her psychological state it was about how she her heart felt one thing and her head felt another so again it was so somewhat emotional and psychological. So uh, it was just finding broad poses in that and then hitting the beats, but also within an attitude that, that kind of worked with the dialogue that she had. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, I think the song lyrics changed as we were animating. <laughs> That's right. So I think we had to reanimate. Uh, I think I have some pencil tests of the other version somewhere here on that old thing called three-quarter inch tape <laughs> that, that people don't play anymore. But um Actually, mentioning three-quarter inch tape, it was interesting how we used to test our animation. We'd have a couple of rooms where we'd go in there and take the paper and shoot it under the camera. And if there were, a lot of people wanted to shoot their animation, they'd have to wait in line. Mm-hmm. And you'd sit there and you'd you'd have to have filled out an X sheet or time stuff out before because you were going to shoot it. And then you could see it and you might make some quick changes right there by reshooting a bunch of stuff. But, you know, it's not like the computer today where you can sort of retime things uh, ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of cool to try and figure out your timing a little bit before you you actually shot the animation. Yeah, and actually flipping the paper, as old fashioned as it sounds, is a good <laughs> way to actually time out your poses to get a rhythm for your animation. Mm-hmm. And you could actually sense and by flipping the whole stack whether you had too many drawings or, you know, if you're doing a post test initially. No, I don't think I ever uh, did it long enough to get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a shooter. <laughs> It was pretty cool when you got to that point where you, you could flip stuff and get a really good sense, and then you'd shoot it under the camera, and you'd see a couple of mistakes. You know, a shoulder would kind of go in the wrong place, but mm-hmm. then you'd go, wow, that kind of looks pretty cool. <laughs> so you'd actually really analyze your tests and then sometimes uh, even keep some of the mistakes that you you put in there. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think it was Andreas, he did a test for Hercules. It was of Jack Nicholson doing Hades. I think. Okay, yeah. I think it was Andreas. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, actually Hades? just... Okay, or, or Nick. I want to say it was Andreas. Okay, an early test. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but he was able to play the audio and flip the animation at the same time, at the same time wow. and make it actually 
20, like 24 frames per second. Yeah. That, that's pretty that's talented. talented. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he's still there. <laughs> but actually with that film, we went up to Santa Barbara. We had a retreat with Gerald Scarp, the designer, and he, uh, we were in the conference room at, I think, the Four Seasons Hotel up in Santa Barbara for a couple of days sort of doing drawings and getting Gerald's point, points of view on his drawing style and kind of what, what didn't work work with our characters. Mm-hmm. So it became a uh, design Bible that, that, that came out of that uh, certain Gerald Scarf sensibility. So that was a drawing style, but then the animation style, there was a nice cartooniness to some of the characters, like Phil mm-hmm. that Eric animated and... Um, Meg tried to put some subtle, nice squash and stretch, and again, totally different than the Pocahontas and even uh, the Tarzan stuff afterwards. And it was kind of very graphic, so that she had a huge bundle of hair uh, in front of her face that you would treat as a graphic element that would sort of swing from one side to the other. So yeah. it was really playing with the medium, mm-hmm. being a graphic medium. Yeah, I just had a really a lot of fun. It was great working with that that crew. It was, you know, I remember. Uh, uh, this is really for the podcast, but I remember when uh, at the studio they had like Halloween day, you know, on Halloween people would bring their kids and there was a girl dressed as Meg one time and uh, she was walking and she was yeah, taking her, memory. she was taking her <laughs> skirt. Well, it's just, it just struck me because she was taking her skirt and as she was walking, she was doing this with the side with of her skirt. <laughs> and I was like, what is that girl doing? Then I realized she was doing the, the hips, hips rocking back and forth. She's like trying to re- recreate this graphic oh, cool. of hips moving. And, and this little kid really picked up on that shape change. Well, it's funny. What, well, it obviously had an effect on kids. And I remember reading in the newspaper, I think I still have the article. Um, somebody, there was an article about how Meg was, again, you know, graphically, she was very thin, long bodied character, uh, sort of a, a negative image for, for females, mm-hmm. which, which was odd because we were, con- I, I can sort of see where she was coming from, but we actually designed the character with Greek elements in mind. So yeah. I literally thought of the torso as being a Corinthian column, and at the top of the columns are the you know the the uh, floral elements that were kind of like these little medallions that that she had on her outfit, and her hips were kind of like a, a vase shape. Mm-hmm. So we actually, if you broke down the basic shapes of Meg, she was actually her head was kind of a vase shape. So it's funny how our intentions might be. You think good, mm-hmm. but then when it's out there, people uh, Interpretation. interpret it the yeah. way they want to see yeah. it. And, and it's funny because with the next char- character, with Jane, there's the moment where she actually takes her bustle off in some of her uh, Victorian costume. And I kind of drew her a little bit wider and a bit thicker legged and things like that. But when you try to do something that might please somebody, you don't you don't read articles about how what a great <laughs> job you did, you know, trying to change that uh, the female image. And it's funny because you've been kind of pegged as the uh, like female animator. The girly man? Yeah, you're the girly man. I think there's a few of us. I think Tony Fuccelli was there and Glenn, of course. And mm-hmm. All very chubby, un- <laughs> unfeminine guys, <laughs> I think. But you've done your homework. <laughs> no, it's funny when you animate a female, I don't. I didn't really try to see them particularly as females per se. It was really as characters. I think I mentioned that the other day. Of mm-hmm. A person who's got problems and conflicts and likes to laugh and is, is in a situation. Uh, the way a lot of the scripts were written, the female characters to me had a lot of, um, they were kind of 
common sense in a way within the stories. You know, there could be a lot of chaos, but at some point the female characters are kind of the, almost like the strong, unless they're the villain, there's kind of a strong force. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just very, like real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> uh, but within that, you can still have a humorous character and a very insecure character, et cetera. But mm-hmm. when the time comes, they're, 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 they're um, very strong. Um, and it, I was really influenced at that time by the films of the 1940s. I, I'm still trying to catch up with the films of today, but I, I like to watch silent films and films from the 30s and 40s. And uh, Meg would have been more of a Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck type of personality. And uh, Jane would have been more of a Jean Arthur mm-hmm. uh, character. And Jean Arthur was a great actress who was in um, a, few, a few Frank Capra movies. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but she was also in another uh, set of films directed by George Stevens where she was a little bit more of a comedian. Mm-hmm. And uh, The More the Merrier is a great film to watch. I mean, she does one of the best takes I've ever seen anybody do. She ha- she has makeup on her face and she does this really great take. Uh, but what was cool, cool about her, she was very feminine. She looked uh, very appealing and yet she was very uh, physical at the same time. So um, I think a lot of the times when you animate uh, uh, some females, you tend to almost animate them in a dainty way, like mm-hmm. they're porcelain dolls, and uh, that's kind of dull to watch uh, for a whole film. Yeah. Speaking of Tarzan, you were on that production for a long time. Uh, uh, no. There, no? I kind of came on. Uh, there was actually another animator who was doing Jane originally, and was I was it? I was finishing Meg, and uh, I was asked if I would be interested in helping out with uh, taking on Jane. Hmm. Usually you would sort of finish a film and then sort of skip one movie and go to the next yeah, one so you yeah. could sort of get a rest in between. And, and uh, the animators had been on that film, I think, for eight months already. Guys like Mike Suri and um, John Rippa mm-hmm. were already on Tarzan. And uh, I think Emery Bardwell was doing Jane. And um, so they asked me to do it and uh, I agreed to it. The idea of doing Jane, you know, and Glenn doing Tarzan, uh, it was just experience that I, you know, would only get to do once, mm-hmm. uh, as it turned out, but uh, it was right, the right thing to do, and it was such a great character, and Mini Driver gave such a great performance that it, it just seemed like a lot of fun, which is kind of why you get into animation in the first place, and, and again, it was that idea of trying to do a, a, a fun performance. And um, Glenn worked in France at the time. Glenn worked in France. He would come over for some meetings. He had a team in the Paris studio. I think he had about, I don't know, eight or ten animators. Mm-hmm. And his cleanup crew, I believe, was in France. So did that affect any working? I mean, obviously he's well, not Glenn, in the same Glenn building. actually boarded a lot of the sequences, a lot of great sequences. I mean, the stuff where they're up in the tree, uh, he boarded, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But they would rough out their tests over there. If, this, if the character was in the same shot with Jane, uh, it, it, you'd sort of designate which character was the the leading the shot, mm-hmm. you know, who was motivating the scene. So they might rough out a Tarzan and then just, they would literally send over the drawings. But they also had a computer over there and we had our computer pencil test by that time. So they would shoot a test and we would be able to look at it at our end mm-hmm. immediately. So they would send drawings or copies of the drawings. We would animate our character roughly. We would shoot it on the computer and composite them, and they could see the two performances. The directors would give their notes, and then we would 
uh, would probably go to them to tie down their motivating character, and then we would mo- tie down Jane. So it was it was a bit awkward, mm-hmm. but but not that different than if they were in the same building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and it, and again, it depends on the animator. You might go, okay, this guy can do both characters. Mm-hmm. It's a scene where they can do both characters, so you make that decision when you're casting. But there might be times where you know I really wanted to animate Jane in a scene, and you know Glenn wanted to do Tarzan, so. It worked out yeah, pretty you, well. Is that and, the one where they're like twirling on the vine together? Yeah, when they're twirling, I think even yeah, Glenn started that one, and he kind of roughed out some of Jane as well. Very rough poses. Mm-hmm. But then you ended up going back in. Yeah, I went back in, Jane. did my version, and yeah. And I was like, I mean, <laughs> I even forgot about that. So the complexity that. of that of these two characters like intertwined, and you guys are both doing your own half. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and it worked, and yeah, and uh, it actually was the same. Well. On Meg, we had some animators in the Paris studio worked on Meg as well. So mm-hmm. that was another part of the project. Like Yoshi? Yoshi yeah. and Stéphane Saint-Foy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, they would shoot their tests. They would sh- – we'd be able to view it on a computer here in L.A. And what was cool about the time difference in a way is that I could speak on the phone. It was nine hours later there. They would go home. I would – sort of work at the studio here in LA at the end of the day I'd sort of really go through it give notes do drawings and fax them drawings so that when they got in the in in the morning they would have you know notes drawn out they would have maybe I would have retimed something on the computer and a, a phone message so they'd have a lot of information and that was pretty much one of the first projects where I I was working with another facility on mm-hmm. the same project and Ever since that, that's become more common, especially yeah. with smaller studios uh, working on different projects together. You mentioned this uh, retiming and doing drawings and stuff. That's a very common 2D thing to even, you know, take someone's scene, put it on your pegs and start working over it and doing, you know, changing images. And that, that doesn't but, happen so much in CG. Yeah, to me, though, it's the only way to supervise if you want to communicate an idea. I mean, trying to do it over the phone and say, you know, can you move the eyes, you know, mm-hmm. in this frame over, I mean, it, there's nothing better than just sort of sketching it out and right. giving them notes. And but do you feel? And, it, and if you're an animator, I think you, you know you appreciate getting the actual notes in the direction. So, but do you feel as doing CG, it's a harder? Is it more just verbal, like change this frame or change that frame? You can't really sit down. Depends and on the studio's. Grab the mouse. It depends and, on the studio's tools. Yeah. Uh, there are some studios where it's yeah it's done through email, which is very very complicated. It's just more time consuming. Yeah, but it's it's more about like the philosophy of like I don't know. Sometimes if well, you feel weird to like take someone's mouse and sit at their keyboard when it's like it's no different than taking their drawings and putting a fresh sheet over and say. To me, there's nothing better than sketching it. So we have tools here, and I know Disney has the tools uh, called Show Tools, where you can actually look at a, a kind of a pose test or a blocking pass and do sketches. I mean, you have to use a tablet or a mouse. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's still the best way to just, you know, here, shift the character over here, pull out this frame, retime this, and really get quick ideas to the animator. And then they can actually save that file and have that for reference. Yeah. And or sitting down with a piece of paper and sketching it out. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's for me personally, I still like the methodology that we had in traditional and try to encourage that with people that I work with. So there's animators that I'm working with now. They they thumbnail st- stuff before they start their shot. Mm-hmm. It's trying to get them to think about why they're animating that shot. Forget that it's a computer. Forget that it's pencil or wh- whatever the tool is. Stop motion puppet. 
you know, what's the idea of that shot? And they may even show a couple of thumbnails and you go, okay, that's kind of a cool idea and, and uh, you know, move on. Mm-hmm. And that's why even in the computer, I love to see a really rough post-test. I don't mean something that's all on ones sort of smoothed out. It's really simple, basic poses, you know, they whether it's stepped or whatever tool that you use to do it. Is seeing really some broad ideas uh, without a lot of details. It doesn't matter that the ears aren't over, you know, mm-hmm. flowing nicely and all that stuff. It's it's really what's the idea of the scene. And I like to get that in front of a director relatively soon as well. And that that was true of two D. Is I would rough out stuff in a very. If you look at my roughs, they're very sort of light. There's very f- kind of few lines on the page. Yeah. But I'm just, and you can get the idea. I mean, in theory, it could be a stick figure and it should be able to communicate an idea right that's uh, th- that's actually a note from art babbitt uh when i lived in spain i remember finding these xeroxes from art babbitt's notes when he was at richard williams in 72 mm-hmm. richard williams had him over and gave lectures about animation and by the time i you know i was in europe or i was in spain in 87 86 and you know the xeroxes were like 800 you know, copied 800 times so you could barely read some of the stuff. But I'd say a lot of the principles that I know about animation now are still from those notes. Mm-hmm. He covered everything. And, you know, Richard Williams has since done a book uh, that sort of uh, expand on those notes. But the whole uh, overlap, breaking of joints, uh, that's something that, that I really enjoyed doing is really exaggerating the breaking of joints, uh, the contrast uh, so if somebody does something with their hand, uh, I like the idea of really, f- <laughs> it's hard to explain over uh, an interview like this, but th- the perfect example is Goofy's foot, the way that his ankle when in the walk that Art Babbitt would do kind of broke all the rules, but he mm-hmm. broke the joints. But if you look at it graphically, it's actually a shape of color that's animating yeah. with some overlap and things like that. So he's pushing uh, the joints uh, behavior mm-hmm. at the right time and at a certain speed, et cetera. Yeah. I know so, when, uh, he did his, when Art Babbitt, he kind of did like a symposium where he would teach people animation and he would have them only he, animate a stick figure. He'd, only, he'd take all those principles, you know, overlap all that stuff that I was just talking about and, and have them just animate it with a stick figure. Yeah. And if that stick figure does not communicate the idea for the scene, then it's not successful. Mm-hmm. All the dressing, all the clothing, all the extra stuff that you put on a character doesn't make it any better yeah. as far as communicating yeah. the idea. That's why, even for me, I don't do a lot of f- f- detail in the face per se. I mean, I might get an attitude, but um, it's really trying to communicate the body language and the attitude. And uh, so the, the, my post-tests were like that. They mm-hmm. were kind of a little bit light and a little bit loose because then I would end up rubbing, if they were relatively successful, I would rub down those very same drawings and start to put in the detail. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to be able to for a feature, it's a feature film is is a factory job. You know, animation is in a way it's a factory job. You have mm-hmm. to output so many feet by the end of the release date, or by the end of the schedule for the release. For me personally, I like to figure out a way to get as much animation into the film as possible. Um, some guys are more natural than others. It just sort of flows out out of them, and you know they've done a ton of animation. I had to kind of come up with a process, so it was doing that thing of getting as much information about the character, understanding the scene, et cetera, et cetera, roughing out very lightly on paper. So in the first day or so, I'd have a rough post test and be able to show it to the director and get feedback right away. So that's why I like 
to have people on my team do is to try and rough something out with a lot, without a lot of detail mm-hmm. so we can get it in front of, well, of course, I'll give notes, but then get it in front of the director and uh, sort of get their point of view on it. And um, then they can go back and tie it down. And then you start to get a system, like how can I rough out that idea relatively simply mm-hmm. and not worry about the detail and not trying to impress people by the detail. And a lot of the times you'll show that post-test to other animators or other people in the film. And if you stand back and watch the reaction, and if they're not reacting sort of the way that you thought they might or should, then you may go, maybe go back and analyze. You know, maybe it wasn't funny enough. Maybe I didn't capture a moment. Why Why was it funny in the storyboards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you go back and you that look happens at the, a lot. I go back and I look at storyboards a lot. You know, those guys do a lot of work, you know, finding really strong poses and good ideas. You know, why not use that material that was so successful in the storyboard stage? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that happened even in Shark Tale in 3D. There's a scene where Angie, the fish, is kind of very angry at uh, the Oscar fish, and she's, like, punching her hand and calling her him a dummy head and things like this. And storyboards, it got a laugh. Even the rough layout artist did an amazing job. He actually put some timing in there, and it actually was very funny. And then my first post-tests were not quite that funny. So I looked back not only at the storyboards, but also the layout guy's pass. And he had done some really simplistic timing that was very, very punchy mm-hmm. and very fun. So I just kind of used it because it was getting a laugh. Yeah. And uh, in the end, it, it got a laugh. So it's really it's really great trying something out and then seeing how people react. Mm-hmm. And if they don't kind of react the way you think they should, it, it's wise to to be honest with yourself and try to analyze the work and um, – and and be willing to change it, even yeah. if you're a supervisor. You know, yeah. it's it's good to, to 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 be able to adapt. Even even in the heat of production, did you uh, find time to show other animators, or did you get into a pace where you were just blocking showing directors? You know, people animators always are they're coming by for lunch. Yeah, they're coming by Friday. Yeah, like, what know, are you working on? And you yeah. get the little computer set up there, and you just start playing it, and just you know, without requesting, hey, can you see and make you know, mm-hmm. you just sort of do it nonchalantly so that it'll be a, an honest reaction. Yeah. And and it should be that almost first reaction. And again, looking at other animators' shots myself, when I look at somebody in my unit, if I look at their shot, it's usually my first reaction. If I if it wasn't funny or if I didn't understand exactly what, like, what, okay, why didn't I understand? So then you analyze it. You mm-hmm. go, okay, you're missing a moment here. You move through quick too quickly through this. And again, it's not so much about the drawing at that point or the, the details of, of overlap and stuff like that. It's really what's your first reaction, uh, and and if it didn't work, why didn't it work? Yeah. So it's really that constant analyzing and being analytical. Which, you know, although it was many years ago, I left Disney a few years ago when we were there. It, that's what it was about. It was analyzing, and you know, you you had Glenn, you had Andreas, you had Eric right there. And even if you didn't go and ask them to look at your stuff, you knew you had to be at that that level. You know, mm-hmm. you had to be at a certain point. So it was actually kind of got the you know competitive juices and the creative juices flowing because you're actually animating against one of their scenes. So right. yours has to be kind of communicating with their character. So it was really it was really a cool experience, and uh, not a lot of studios. You know, there's a lot of productions where it's, you know, it, they have to output so much animation so it becomes very factory-like without that extra analyzing. 
uh, step. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know stuff gets done, but it's just missing something, and and it's not as fun if you're not analyzing stuff to me as an animator, and and I, that's what I fear about the computer itself, is that there's a dependent, you know, people in all parts of society are seeing the computer as sort of the answer to everything, you know, the machine is the answer, and it's it's good to mix the human element with the machine, and I just hope that they don't lose sight that the animator brings something to the game. Mm-hmm. Bring something unique. Bring something that's a caricature of reality, even if it's in a machine to communicate the idea. Uh, it'd be a shame if they, you know, if it's just all rotoscope or it's all sort of some programmed methodology where you can say, okay, this is a certain kind of character, and then it just acts that way in a yeah. film. It's just creatively speaking, it's just not that fun. Yeah, I mean, as yeah. an individual creating stuff. Yeah, it's interesting too when you think about like uh, motion capture and. Yeah, sure, they can create a performance, but most animators I know that are really good at animating, acting, they're not good actors. Like, they can't stand up and act something out very well, but they can think about it and they can transfer that onto the screen or yeah. on, you know, on the paper. Right. And it's, it's a very strange well, skill. I mean, this gets into that whole thing of, you know, you don't have to be a tree to paint a tree. i mean you can look at it you can analyze it and then you can communicate your own point of view so chagall will paint his own version of a tree salvador dali will paint his own version of a tree but he doesn't have to be a tree Mm -hmm. so as an animator you can observe stuff and you can bring your own point of view so if 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 andreas had done jane or if and you know he's going to bring his own point of view that's the cool thing is that it's going to be different yeah you know, and that's what's cool about the films is that each character, if it's done well, is different from each other. Uh, if all the characters sort of are drawn the same and animate the same and have the same timing and it's sort of programmed, it's just, to me, it's a bore. You know, and if the characters never evolve during the film and mm-hmm. they don't bring something new to a different scene right. that the audience hasn't seen and is surprised, you know, then it's it's not that creative. Yeah. And it's like any art form. It's like... Uh, I'm sure they could program computers to paint any style, but but so what? You know, what not it better to have sort of your own energy and to sit there with brush and, and to actually do it yourself and get dirty and, you know, or photography, get there and, and look at the world around you in your own point of view. And for all those years, people had black and white cameras, but you had Ansel Adams, you had uh, Imogene Cunningham, you had all kinds of different people. Uh even looking at the same subject matter and having a different point of view. And mm-hmm. that, that to me is, it doesn't matter if it's a computer or a camera or a painting. It's really what the individual brings to the to the end result. And uh, that's the human element. So, so for me, even computer animation, how can you design your pipeline so that it can allow for humans to adapt it to, I mean, I know everybody talks about how in CG it's great because you can't go off model, but Oh. Personally, <laughs> and, and yet some people still amazingly get off model. But, but I actually like that idea. I mean, when I draw, I like to go off model. I'm not. I'm not trying to s- take that model sheet of the one pose and mm-hmm. have it go through the whole movie. I want to find moments where the character goes off model because they've got a different emotional. Uh, they're in a different emotional state, and it comes out. And you know, if you look at real people, go frame by frame. They have all kinds of things going on that, mm-hmm. that are off model that if you just look at them standing there, they're not going to look like that when they're actually emoting. Yeah. So I like the idea of trying to find ways of, of 
doing things a little differently, but mm-hmm. that's just my own point of view. Um, yeah, I've heard of uh, like uh, I think it was a psychology class. They were talking about like uh, a lot of schizophrenics have their spine is actually kind of twisted and and bent because they're they're not one person, you know. Huh. And so the, physically, they're, they're taking on like well, that's funny. Well, that's multiple f- aspects. Well, that's funny. That's the body language. Well, if you think about it, if you're born in different cultures, if you were the same human born in different places, I'm sure your whole body language would be different yeah. each place. And yeah. I actually found that when I was living in Europe. If you lived in France or London, you're actually, your body language kind of changed because you sort of mirror sometimes the people that you're dealing with mm-hmm. around you. And in England, I think it was winter, so you had heavy coats and you're just, you weren't mobile. And then I moved to Spain and everybody's kind of, <laughs> they've got, you know, one hand waving. It's not quite like the Italians with both hands. It's, you know, they have one hand because the other hand's holding a beer generally. But uh, <laughs> but but truly, you can see different body languages in the culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the same spinal structure. It's the same. Everything's the same, but they're just psychologically in a different place. Yeah, and, yeah. and the way the world is around them, and if it's too hot, you're going to, you know, you're going to behave differently. You may yeah. not move as fast and things like that. So that's actually interesting stuff to take into account if you're doing a character. It's like, mm-hmm. what is their physical world like? Yeah, yeah. And you, again, again about Jane, it's, it's here's a girl with a Victorian age where they would wear the bustle where it was so tight on their body that they would actually fake fainting so they could be taken you know, back to their bedroom or whatnot, and they could get out of the bus and sort of relax, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, and here she is in Africa, and it's really hot, and she's stepping in mud. And so the way I'm, she was moving, it was very staccato, very linear mo- motion at the beginning of the film. And then later when uh, she meets with Tarzan, and he shows her, you know, sort of the back alleys and what, what – uh, how great the jungle can really be. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of taken the bustle off and she's in more casual clothes. The way she was posed was a little bit more of an S curve and more relaxed and, and sort of a different, less staccato movement. Right. So yeah. again, it was just trying to imagine who she was in that time, what the world was, you know, what the physical world was like and, and trying to bring something unique to the, and her mindset. Yeah. 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 I remember like, if I'm remembering right, like in the beginning she would kind of, pat her hair with like the palm of her hand like kind of put it back up and by the end she was like running her fingers through it yeah, and more okay. relaxed all right and, you know that I was wa- subconscious i watched it <laughs> <laughs> you know this the stuff later in the film where she's remembering when she's leaving i think originally they were going to have her leave and her father kind of was going to say go back with tarzan sort of kick her out of the boat mm-hmm. to go back to tarzan uh, and i remember feeling that it should be her decision uh, and to use the glove as a device that, you know, Glenn had boarded that sequence earlier. It's like have her, without saying anything, look at her hand and remember that moment. And it was such a great moment for her. And that's what's great about, you know, film is you don't have to put in the words. Like she doesn't have to say, oh, it was such a great moment earlier. The audience can fill in the, the blanks, you mm-hmm. know, without a lot of animation. And uh, so it was her decision. She gets up, she hugs her father, and then she jumps in, out of the boat and leaves. And, of course, her father follows. But, you know, those are, again, those are character choices and not necessarily animation per se. Mm-hmm. And even though she has all that clothing on again, to me it was kind of, for her it was a sad thing to have to go back to that life in a way of being sort of a Victorian 
person back to the rules of the Victorian culture. She was having such a free life there with Tarzan. So to me, there was a lot of stuff behind behind the scene. Yeah. Okay. So then after um, after Tarzan, you worked on Treasure Planet. Yeah. After Tarzan came out, I guess I was pretty burnt out. That was two films in a row with pretty intense. Yeah. I, I think on Tarzan, I remember going a whole summer without seeing daylight. I was seven days a week, mm-hmm. Saturday, Sundays, working till 11 at night. And yet, in you know, in hindsight, uh, when you have such kind of fun and great work to do, it it was kind of kind of exciting to go in and actually work on the weekends and things like that. Yeah, I was actually enjoying doing the doing the work, uh, but I was pretty burnt out and wanting to work with John and Ron again because it was it's always been such a great experience. Uh, went over to Treasure Planet, and I think they'd already cast a lot of. St- of the characters already uh, and ended up, I was going to do a villain that may have been a bit bigger, a bigger role at one point, Scroop, and then Captain Amelia, who was not yet a cat alien. Uh, and then Sergio was doing Doppler, who was not yet a dog alien. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very, very small crew. We actually moved up to Northside, a building that they had <clears throat> another studio facility they had closer to the Burbank airport that used to be part of the skunk works mm-hmm. facility. Um, and actually it was great. It was a very small team. Oscar Ureta Bizkaya was a CG animator who was doing the Ben robot. He was actually the first animator on the film. He was doing a lot of testing for that, uh, working with a character TD named uh, Carlos Cabral. Sergio was on it. Glenn was on it. He too was sort of a little burnt out from Tarzan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was coming back from France. And then T. Dan was doing sort of the uh, Mr. Arrow, the first in command. And John Rippa was doing uh, Jim Hawkins. Yeah. So it was kind of a fun little group. And we had lots of time. It's, it's actually the only film I didn't do any overtime on, I think. <laughs> it was three years doing the animation. Wow. And the characters were not high volume characters that I was doing. So Emma Thompson, they recorded in England. So I never actually met her. And that's where actually I was starting to do a little bit of CG animation. Also, I, I, I'd always wanted to do CG. The cool thing about Oscar, who read the who I just mentioned, he, he was a 2d animator at Amblin in Europe. And then he, he went over to ILM for Casper. Mm-hmm. Then he made his way to Disney and worked on Hercules, the Hydras and Hercules. And he was always sort of looking for a way to emulate the 2D methodology and 2D tools in the computer. So while he was at Disney, he helped create or he came up with some of the ideas for a tool called Show Tools, which is like a digital X sheet. Uh, timing charts on the Ben robot, he actually had digital timing charts created. Uh, so he basically would do poses, send them over to this X sheet tool, do the poses, time them out in real time, send that timing back to Maya, and then use digital timing charts. And so, having wanted to do CG animation for years, I saw what he was doing. I thought, okay, this is this makes sense. You know, this yeah. is a methodology that I understand. So, in about mm, three hours, he showed me all the basic keys that I needed to know on the keyboard, and you know, I took notes. And he, what he does, which is kind of cool, is he doesn't get into a lot of the detail of Maya or you know a lot of the technical stuff. He just shows you the primary 
tools you need to know to animate. He, he reckons if you know how to animate, all you need are some primary menus and tools to get going. So, so I started to animate, and I had Carlos, the character TD, sort of model a little scroop body and rig it. Because all of our sets in Treasure Planet were CG. Mm-hmm. All of the ship was CG. So I wanted to do a test of this villain character, Scroop, coming down the mast. And, and he's the one that has the big crab body, right? Yeah, he has a yeah. huge crab claws. Yeah, and, yeah. and he, we were still designing him, and I wanted to do some tests. And, and if I was going to an, animate him during a sort of this camera move around the ship, I wanted it to look like his body f- was actually fitting on the ship. So I animated this, this crab walk down the mast and on, onto the deck. And he kind of comes to the camera and he does a bit of dialogue. And um, so I, I did that animation. And I set up a couple of different cameras and showed John and Ron. And they, they picked, you know, one that they liked. And uh, that was kind of my first real CG animation. Mm-hmm. That was 2000, somewhere around there. And I actually thought it would have been cool to maybe do the whole character CG. But uh, what I ended up doing was then printing out all that the animation of the crab body and then print um, tracing it off, drawing the body. So and it was hand-drawn. So it was hand-drawn and then animating the upper body and doing, you know, traditional 2D animation. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a combination of both the CG and 2D. And uh, I still have that test and it, it looks, it still looks pretty, pretty tight as yeah. far as the character working within the, the environment. Uh, but I wanted to do more of that. I wanted to do more CG. And how did the uh, production react to that? Uh, it was kind of a strange time. It was a really a, a belief at that time that 2D guys maybe couldn't do CG. So it was sort of poo-pooed. It was sort of put on the back burner that I was mm-hmm. even doing it, but which was kind of the dif- different than the Disney that I had known for so many years, which was do new stuff, get better, push you know push the boundaries, all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to keep learning and doing more stuff and uh, started to do things on my own. Uh, short film that was CG. Now, I'd wanted to do CG since the mid-'80s. In fact, when I was at Sheridan College, I think I took the first class in CG graphics. It was an evening class in 83 or 84. And uh, it was mainly kind of like Illustrator. It's like vector graphics Mm -hmm. and a huge machine that was probably half a million dollars. Uh, But it was a lot of of fun. And... uh, then when I ended up working in Europe, I think I remember seeing like little Apple stores, like just seeing this thing called the computer kind of, the home computer coming around. And then by the time I got to Ireland in 87-ish, I bought my first computer, which was an Amiga, Amiga A500. And uh, I bought a CG program called Imagine at the time. And all, all you could do was create um, airplanes and very geometric things. Mm-hmm. You know, I was dying to do something organic and character-oriented. So, you know, it was always... I guess you had to imagine it. I had to imagine. <laughs> imagine 2.0. Uh, so, in fact, even when I came to the States in 88, I remember seeing uh, an ad in the paper for Rhythm and Hughes, and I thought about going to Rhythm and Hughes to get into computer graphics. And, of course, I'd seen Luxo Jr., and it was like I was amazed at what Pixar was doing at that time. I don't, I'm not sure why I didn't attempt to go there but I ended up at Disney of course and I think that was pretty good to try and learn mm-hmm. what Frank and Ollie what, what they had developed over the years 
but there was Oscar. There, there he was doing sort of the thing that that I imagined was taking some of the methodology from the nine old men and applying it to the computer. So by the time we finished up with Treasure Planet, DreamWorks had been calling about perhaps uh, helping out on Shark Tale. So for me, it was an exciting uh, opportunity to to work on a CG project and maybe again try to bring some of the ideas about character animation and, and some of the methodology to that production. So both Oscar Ureta Bethkaya, who I'll call Oscar Ureta from now on, <laughs> um, we actually were the first guys to go over to that production and help set up the character pipeline. So we developed some of those similar tools like a neck sheet and a timing chart, still maintaining the same Maya graph editor, et cetera. It's, it's, we were just adding extra tools to it. Mm-hmm. Partly because, you know, DreamWorks was going to put 80% of the crew uh, for Shark Tale was going to be from 2D animations. So that was actually a really cool experience working with the, the character TDs. Uh, they had a really great group of guys. And for for Oscar and I and eventually Lionel Galat and Fabio and the other supervisors, it was a great experience working with the team and, and trying to formulate some systems and ideas for the CG animation. And what's funny with CG animation is that you can end up getting caught up in the whole technical discussion all day long. You know, what kind of <laughs> yeah. spline? Is it a spline curve or is it, you know, clamped or whatnot? But you have to pull back again and talk about, okay, yeah, but what, what's the sequence about? What are the characters about? And, you know, this the story really isn't working because the characters don't, you know. So it was kind of cool to work with the other supervisors in, in talking about the characters and the story. And uh, the director was from traditional animation, Bebo. So it was great talking to him about ideas. So overall, that was a positive experience. Mm-hmm. And from that, I got another Annie nomination, but it was with, uh, let me see, four guys that worked on uh, The Incredibles. So <laughs> <laughs> so I, I knew I, I didn't have a chance in hell of uh, winning, but I think I may be the, f- the only guy or the first guy to get a nomination for a 2D feature and then a, a CG character, but didn't win either one of them. Mm-hmm. So still nice. Um, nice to be nominated. Nice to be nominated, yeah, for my first CG production. But it, for me, it was really great because truly I was able to do exactly the same methodology mm-hmm. that I had worked in traditional. I was doing a post-test, showing a director, using an X sheet for timing. In that tool, I would actually draw my timing charts and work with an assistant that would do the digital timing charts and maybe start animating secondary characters or animating some of the fins and then that sort of developed an apprenticeship system whereby at the end of the film, that guy's doing some animation scenes of his own mm-hmm. and he's having direct contact with the supervisor, even though he doesn't have to output a lot of animation on his first production. Right. And that, that's so something- I still, I still love that methodology. It's again, it's a, it's a Disney esque thing, but it's really a great way to train people up uh, by not forcing the pressure of outputting a lot of, a lot of work initially, especially when they're not ready. It's, uh, and then you'll see, and you could see there were three or four, you know, they, they actually had quite a few assistants and you could see the people that were coming along and mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe somebody else needed another film and, and it was just really a great experience. Uh, I actually like training people up and talking about all this stuff that we're talking about now, uh, with, with younger people and new guys coming in mm-hmm. and because they'll get better, that forces you to get better. And you can actually learn from guys in your team. Yeah. And that keeps you growing. And it makes the product and the stories and the films better. And if the films are better, then that's a good thing for everyone. And I, I don't know. It's it's cool. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been 
doing this for 25 years, and it's I've worked with some really great young talent who. You know, Thank you. Yes, like oh. you, Clay Cadis. <laughs> we're now supervisors. now supervisors. Yeah, full disclosure. Yes, I worked I, with Ken on. Was Hercules the first, or uh, in between on that? Yeah, I was. I became an in betweener on Hercules. Yeah, Hercules, and then eventually animating on Treasure Planet on Scroop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, rough days for me but <laughs> well, i think it was rough days in the studio in general that's when sort of the things the layoffs were happening and yeah you know I, I i remember when things were changing i was still trying to keep some sort of energy going and i was having those lunchtime sort of lectures or screenings uh, screenings yeah. of uh, some of the methodologies of the uh, silent movie actors and things like that just trying to talk about how different guys would approach their filmmaking and that you know you have to kind of find your own methodology in a way that's valid. Mm-hmm. But it was tough times trying to get anybody excited about anything because it was, you know, the studio was going through some yeah. turmoil. Yeah, it was kind of scary. So it's cool that you hung in with it. Um, but, uh, I was going to ask, uh, did DreamWorks, uh, I, I've never worked there, but I can only assume that it kind of has a feel of working in Europe. There's a lot of European animators there. Does it have um, kind of that international feel? Totally. I Something think, familiar I think to on, you? I think, yeah, that, that was kind of cool in a way was was again working with European guys. And I think on Shark Tale, there was only like three or four Americans. Mm-hmm. Kathy Zielinski, Kathy Jones. They were all actually women. Kathy Jones. There's a few Americans and a bunch of Canadians and Europeans. So, yeah, there's a lot of guys that have come out through the French school system. And a lot of them ended up at Amblin in London. And then from there, uh, DreamWorks got a lot of their animators from Amblin. Mm-hmm. And they're amazingly talented. And yeah. a lot of them have done great with the computer as well. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's maybe being in Europe and being surrounded by classic art all the time. There's just something well, very fundamentally it, different about the way European animators seem to draw. Well, in France, actually, there's a lot of influence. Well, when I was there, anyway, there was a lot of French comics. Yeah. So you had the old stuff, which is Uderzo, uh, Asterix. You had uh, Franquin, who did Gaston Lagaffe and uh, Marsupilami. And those guys drew in such an appealing way. And yet those guys were influenced by like the old Disney stuff, mm-hmm. you know. But they took took that language and created their own style and a, a very Euro style. And what was amazing about them is that they could – they did an amazing layout. They did an amazing character designs. Even the way they drew cars and everything was very cartoony and very mm-hmm. cool. In fact, to this day, I'd still love to animate uh, something by uh, Franquin because it's such an animatable style. And then you had Rank Xerox at that time. You had, you know, since then you've had um, Baudal. You've had uh, the guy that does um, Black Sad. Mm-hmm. Realistic, cartoon, watercolor, you know, you, you name it. Yeah. They have different styles. Yeah. And that's kind of – It's all kind it's of a popular great, art. And it's, and it's modern, yeah. you know. It's not – it's not looking at another area era per se. There's mm-hmm. a lot of development. Uh, Hugo Pratt was a guy in the 80s, also 90s. Uh, I worked in London with Oscar Grillo and his stuff. He's Argentinian. He would show me some French illustrators. He showed me Argentinian illustrators. There's a gentleman named uh, Carlos Nine. who's absolutely amazing, crazy imagination. But it's not necessarily Disney-esque stuff, you know. It's different. Yeah. And... But I think that's a cool thing is that there's other stuff going on on out there. Yeah. And, and I may have mentioned this in the previous conversation, but in Canada we had the National Film Board. 
you had guys experimenting with pastel animation. You had Frederick Bach. Who did. The cool thing about Frederick Bach or any of the shorts in short films at festivals is that some of the ideas are amazing. Mm-hmm. Frederick Bach's ideas in some of his shorts are, are monumental. He did one. I can't remember the name, but I can't remember the name. But it's you know basically God creates Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. and they 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 want what the fish have. They want what the birds have feathers, and they're never quite happy. So yeah. he leaves them naked, and then yeah. they become even more jealous of animals and start to to kill them and wear them and build cities. And it's got a really big theme in mm-hmm. it. That's that you'd never see in a feature film. Yeah. A two-hour film would never have as yeah. much to say. And he really uh, short. he can capture these themes without a, not a lot of um, nope. character. Like, Yeah, no dialogue, first of all. Yeah. You don't and have not like, a lot these of, like, jokes and these like, personalities coming on the screen. It's more of like you're just observing. It's, yeah, it's almost like the, the art of, of animation, which is visual storytelling, nonverbal mm-hmm. visual communication. I mean, that's what, to me, uh, I actually like Fantasia, you know, a lot of, some people don't, but Night on Bald Mountain to me is one of the best sequences for animation. Yeah. It's pantomime, it's music, it's ama- amazing color work, uh, mood, uh, the timing of mm-hmm. it is amazing, the visual effects. To me, it's it's some of it's even done almost like a pastel style. Yeah. So I really love that kind of sort of animation, visual storytelling, and experimentation. I don't think there should be one style and same with the computer or whether it's 2D or pastel or stop motion. That's the, the art of animation to me is, is sort of the, the stylization of reality rather yeah. than just sort of photo reality. Yeah. And uh, I like it all. I mean, that's, I love the old Windsor McKay stuff, the old early Fleischer stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the flash stuff that's being done is really cool. It's just, it's, I don't know. You keep hearing quotes about animation from people that maybe have never animated. A that, lot. That's yeah. going on out there. Yeah. And then it becomes, well, this is what animation is. And to me, animation isn't one style. It's it's not, you know, it's not even just Disney. Mm-hmm. Dis- there was animation before Disney. Yeah. You know, he you know he came in later in the game. And there was a it's lot of imagination. It's, it's imagination. It's bringing s- stuff from your imagination to fruition. Yeah. And uh, whatever materials you need to do it I, i'd still like to see even uh, mixed media more you know stop motion with 2d and maybe a bit of cg and mm-hmm. you know mike smith is is a, an amazingly talented guy that i've worked with he had a commercial studio in london he's a guy that likes to mix different mediums he likes he, he wants to do more projects actually that mixes different stop motion and animation he's an amazingly creative guy and again he's another european there's a lot of them that are amazingly talented that maybe even people over here don't know mm-hmm. about too much. Um, you were only at DreamWorks for one film, right? Only one film. Just Although sh- I heard rumors when I was there that I had a three-picture deal to direct. So, Darn. It, uh, I, I was always... It's always funny when people tell you rumors about yourself and you're telling them that it's not true, but they don't want to believe you. <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah... I'd always wanted to set up a little studio to try and perhaps combine some of the things that we've just been talking about, doing some character stuff, mixing. I, I do like CG. I like the idea of maybe even expanding on the looks and styles. Mm-hmm. I like doing 2D, so doing more experimentation in 2D would be awesome. 
and seeing if it's possible to work with other people on the outside and more independent projects and do other things. Mm -hmm. So um, there was an opportunity after working at DreamWorks to uh, to leave, and I worked with another studio to set up a, a studio in Pasadena, California. And we ended up doing sort of the opening sequence to The Wild, uh, did some commercial work, did a test for Paramount for a film called Cavalier and Clay, brought Mike Smith in, brought Chris Sove into the studio. Chris was a supervisor on Iron Giant. He uh, animated in the first couple of seasons of Ren and Stimpy, and he can animate any kind of style. He's pretty amazing. Brought in Oscar, who read the Bithkaya. And uh, we've you know created some of the, these tools that we had at other studios uh, and created our own versions of them. And about a year ago, I left that studio um, to formulate my own Duncan Studio last May here in Pasadena. And for the past several months, we've been working on a on a film called Nine. Uh, I think Tim Burton's an executive producer. It's based on an Oscar-nominated short short film. Shane Acker is the director. It's it's definitely a different sort of film. It's very dark. It's very uh, subtle. And we've been doing some other projects. And you guys just uh, been doing like one sequence in that or just? I think we're doing, f- I think we've done four or five. Wow. Like about close to eight minutes mm-hmm. of animation. And collaborating with an- another studio, uh, Stars. That's been a pleasant experience. Uh, I actually had a, a question about your studio. Okay. Well, I, I kind of remember when uh, we worked together that uh, you always seemed to rail against kind of bad management and how studios were run. I'm sure it influences how you try to run your studio. And you're in charge of the studio, basically, and it's it's your place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. is it easier, said, the other end easier the... said than done, or is it... Uh... Kind of. I mean, the people that we brought into the studio are people that have experience at feature studios. I've tried to design, even though we're a small studio, I've tried to put, to get, keep people that have, you know, have some experience in certain positions, so... Uh, our production managers worked at DreamWorks for several years. Uh, Sue Blanchard worked at in Disney management for a few years. So it's really trying to, and we, you know, we've invested in some production management software, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to the projects, I personally, when I was doing 2D animation, I really liked to plan, like, because you'd have like 2,000 feet you had to animate. Mm-hmm. You had only so many months and you had a team. So I really like to plan out as much as possible on uh, on some sort of a methodology to, to, to accomplish the task. So even in our studio, I like to do that. So the team here is pretty good at sort of planning things out ahead of, ahead of schedule. And we can look at the production so- software and see, uh, you know, we can run reports on anything we need to run and see where we're at. So... You know, and if we come become behind schedule and it's my fault, then it's my responsibility. Uh, mm-hmm. Same with the big studios. You know, there was a lot of, you know, if we back up and sit, look at that time when things were getting kind of out of hand, animators were always being somewhat lambasted or a lot of times for, you know, you know it was too expensive. Their department was too expensive. But at the same time, we only had so much time to animate stuff and we'd, we would end up doing the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it was from the delay at the front end before we even got shots. So you, sometimes you'd have a whole studio sitting around waiting for shots. Yeah. And you wanted the company to succeed as much as anybody. 
uh, so you could stay working there. So you wished, you know, you wished that the films didn't get expensive. You wished that the production kind of went smoother. And um, it just got to be such a huge animal. And it got out of hand. There really wasn't anybody, it seemed, that was in control anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's really no one individual that's at fault, probably. It's just that the system got kind of too big. And that's definitely not our problem here. <laughs> uh, and what's cool about working on smaller projects or a smaller team, actually, and you're probably seeing that at Disney on the shorts and, and the new management that came in, is you know you get people in a room, they have some experience, they generally know what they're talking about, and you come up with a consensus as to what you're going to do. They go back to their desk and they do it. Yeah. Try to avoid having seven, seven meetings about the meeting you just had. You know, yeah. <laughs> you you have a meeting about what it is that the problem is at hand. You say this is what we're going to do, and then you go and do it. You know, and at the end of the day, if it's done, it may not be perfect, but everybody's learning because you never quite get to perfection anyway. Uh, everyone's continuing to learn, but rather than sort of shooting yourself in the foot right off the bat by sort of meeting and meeting and meeting and taking the spirit out of the job, uh, then it then it's not as fun. So then you, you know, the end result is even maybe even less fun to, mm -hmm. to watch. So it's trying to keep a certain energy going and try to accomplish certain goals and then keep getting better and, and improving your methodologies and keep learning. So I've learned with my own studio, you know, how to, you know, I'm probably not animating as much as I used to. Mm -hmm. And I, like to work on more and more projects and I'd love to bring in more talented people. I'd love to work with all kinds. I'd like to train more people up, uh, you know, and uh, have some impact and try to do stuff uh, that looks a little differently and still has a high character animation performance quality to it. Cool. Well, looking around, no one can see what I'm looking at, but uh, looks like you guys are on your way. Oh, thanks. That's thanks. cool. thing about for me is that you know when I was at Disney doing those films I always thought okay the next couple of films will experiment even more in performance stuff and even look at where acting is today and see if we can maybe even push stuff in a different direction or experiment uh, and it's funny because these films take so long to make and you only get to make so many it's kind of mm -hmm. a little discouraging that you don't get to to do more of it yeah. and uh, it's unfortunate to have not stayed at Disney and, and experimented some more there but even the CG stuff or anything we're doing now I just it, it's really only the tip of the iceberg I think as far as the stuff that can be done and there's some studios or there's people with money and they have studios and I don't know if they realize how fortunate they might be in in being in a position to explore and push the art form even more I think there's a general feeling a lot of times with studios and, and a desire to be successful that they look backwards. Mm -hmm. They look at what's been done the last couple of months or the previous year and they try to emulate it when they should be trying to imagine stuff and push stuff in a different direction. If that's if that's the one thing about the spirit of Windsor McKay or, or Walt Disney or even the Fleischers to a certain extent is that they were constantly wanting to grow and to imagine things and try to push it mm -hmm. to another level. And uh, it's funny to read a book. There's a book that was published in the 1920s by a, a writer named Lutz, L-U-T-Z or Z. 
it's apparently the book that Disney bought to learn about animation. And it mm. shows you how to animate with paper cutouts and posing and all this sort of stuff. But there's actually a section in the back of the book that's very inspiring about sort of seeing paintings come to life and experimenting with color and music and doing uh, sort of educational films and how to maybe do films on mechanics and all kinds of stuff. Mm. And this is like the 1920s. Yeah. And I could just imagine people at that time reading it and getting inspired to, to, to experiment and try to get to that level. You know, in this room here, I have a bunch, I have tons of books that have so many different styles. There's so many scripts or different types of characters that can be created that are based on people that sort of are around today. Mm-hmm. That it's almost limitless, you know, in what can be experimented with. So when you were, um, when you were at Disney, did you ever feel like, oh, this is it, this is what I'm going to do forever? Because now you're obviously in a different situation and you kind of look yeah, at I this think, and feel like, well, this this is it. Yeah, the, the studio went through a lot of, let's face it, it went through a lot of turmoil around year 2000, somewhere in there. And at the time, things felt pretty good in, as far as doing animation. But it was always that that. And I could see staying there longer, but there was always that feeling that you're you're becoming redundant or you're doing the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, and because a couple of films hadn't been successful, super successful, there was a lot of questioning in what they were doing. So that doesn't allow for a lot of different things to be done. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And part of part of doing a studio is really to keep. You know, you can sit there and blame others. So then it's like, well, why don't you do it yourself? <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. So. So you make an attempt and, you know, you do what you do, but so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Cool. You like it? I, I do. I actually really like having my own and I'd love to get a huge production going and, and really try to do something cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a lot of work, but it's, it's uh, definitely different every day, which is yeah. kind of cool. That concludes part three of my interview with Ken Duncan. I want to thank Ken and the folks at his studio for helping us get together to talk. At the end of the last show, I mentioned the show length and asked you guys what you prefer, and I've heard you loud and clear. Everyone who contacted me says they want longer shows. I guess I'm not surprised, but I just wanted to make sure. Um, I do have a feeling that this show in particular is going to set the current record, so uh, here you go. I've received a couple voicemails since the last show through my Skype in number, so uh, here's someone whose name is Frank, I think. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Frank Tenge. Um I'm a student animator, and I just wanted to say I really enjoy listening to your show. It um, really inspires me to hear the stories that these guys go through, and hopefully, you know, hopefully I'll be like walking in their paths one day. Um, thank you very much uh, for having the show. Bye bye. Thanks for the message, Frank. Animation is tough, but if you keep at it, it is completely worth it. So keep going, and hopefully one day we'll see your work on the screen. Here's another message from Alan in Toronto. Hi, Clay. My name is Alan, and I'm calling from Toronto, Canada. Uh, first of all, thank you for creating such a wonderful podcast. I, for one, find it fascinating to listen to the hours and hours of animators talking. It almost feels like uh, like when Grandpa was telling you a really good story when you were young, you just want to sit down and listen. It's, just, it's great. Secondly, I'm from the 3D side of things, and my specialty is rigging, which, if you're not familiar with computer animation terminology, it's a process by which you make a static model able to deform, bend, demote, and such. Uh, then an animator grabs my rig and brings it to life. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is that, is that uh, while I don't consider myself an animator per se, 
I find it captivating to listen to the great classical animators and how they approach things. In a way, I find that it kind of uh, enlightens me to think like or understand better. And for me, that's important since in 3D, animators use what I produce uh, to animate with. Anyway, I totally love the classical guys, especially Disney guys. But um, I wanted to ask you if maybe, maybe, maybe if you could somehow get in touch with like any major animation people from the present day, perhaps CG people, you know, like uh, Pixar guys, uh, Lasseter, Carlos Baena, Bobby Boombeck, uh, etc. Or maybe even animators from like Blue Sky Studios, uh, DreamWorks, maybe even ILM. I really would love to hear what they have to say. And seeing as you're pretty much the only proper animation podcast out there, I thought I'd ask you. Pretty please. <laughs> anyway, thanks again for immortalizing the remaining living animators in your wonderful podcast. Keep it up. Bye. Hey, Alan, thanks for the message. I do hear from a lot of people who say that listening is like being there in the room, and that's awesome because that's pretty much what I was going for. And you uh, requested that I um, speak to some contemporary animators, but I have to mention four that I've already interviewed, including James Baxter, Dale Bear, Nick Ranieri, Ken Duncan, and I'll throw my name in there too. Um, I do hear you though, and don't worry, I have plans to do this for a very long time, and I hope to cover a very wide range of animation artists. So maybe between shows, you might search around in iTunes, since there are more animation podcasts out there, including Spline Doctors, TuneIn, Conversation on Animation, and Animation Conversations. So uh, go do a search. You'll find more great stuff out there to inspire and educate. That's all for the voicemail. If you want to leave a voicemail for the show, the number is area code 916-AP-FUNNY. 916-AP-FUNNY. You can also send me a recording through my Skype account, which is Animation Podcast. That's one word, Animation Podcast. Or you can go to animationpodcast.com and click on the voicemail link for all the info. Now I'd like to give a sneak preview of the next guest of the Animation Podcast, and I usually like to keep it a surprise, but I'm making an exception this time because I want to give a heads up to anyone who's thinking about going to the San Diego Comic-Con this year. If you're thinking about it, you should go. Uh, My next guest is Eric Goldberg, and at the Comic-Con he will release his long-awaited book, Character Animation Crash Course, and he will be signing it on Friday and Saturday, July 25th and 26th at Stuart Ng Books. Here's a clip of Eric from the next show talking about his new book. Well, I uh, I think we should start with kind of the news, and uh, I think the audience of the show is really going to be excited about this too. Um, it's your book that's finally coming out, and uh, for years I've been hearing that you've been working on a book, and you've had notes for a book, and I've seen bad, bad, bad photocopies of some notes, and I hope this is those notes put into a beautiful format. You just set it up for me beautifully. Um, Yes, the book officially is coming out in July. It's called uh, Character Animation Crash Course, being published by Silman James Press. And it's actually a book and a CD. Uh, both come together. Uh, this, the text is based on these animation notes that I did when I was uh, starting uh, to train some animators at our London studio, Pizzazz Pictures, in the 80s. And... Um, so I would do a lecture every week. You know, one would be on timing, one would be on spacing, some would be on acting, so on and so forth. Um, and I started to build up this kind of stack of handout notes uh, that I would generate every week. And those notes kind of got, you know, passed around and Xeroxed and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, uh, you got a copy of the notes? Yeah, I got a copy of the notes. You know, uh, over the last couple of decades. And... 
I've wanted to do it in book form for the longest time. I've been working on it for a long time. I have a very patient publisher named uh, Gwen Feldman, who actually waited for four years for me to finish this book. But frankly, I've been doing it for 25 years. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it's, you know, all during my tenure at Disney's and doing lectures at colleges and things like that, I've added to it over the years too. Um, so what it is is like the souped-up version of the notes. It's the notes plus. Uh-huh. Uh, and the CD is selected pieces within the book that I've actually animated and done as animation movie oh, files. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so what it means is, you know, for example, if you want to see how to do an attitude walk, uh, I spell it out for you in uh-huh. the book, and, you know, you see there's a little icon there that says there's a movie file. You, you click on the movie file, and you can see what it actually looks like moving. Uh-huh. Um, and beyond that, every movie file has an X sheet down the side, all the in-between charts on the bottom, what, you know, keys are circled, breakdowns are underlined. So not only can you see it move, you can actually analyze it frame by frame and see, oh yeah, that's where the key drawing is, that's mm-hmm. where the breakdown is, here's how you get from there to there, that's ones, that's twos, you know, and really be able to understand in a very hands-on way how it actually works, because you can see the result right in front of you. That's awesome. Uh, no mystery then, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Some of these animation books are like, yeah, just do this, and it's totally different from what the explanation is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I thought, you know, and... It was one of the things that I was thinking was going to be kind of an extra in a few years. And I mentioned it to my publisher, and she said, no, let's do it now. <laughs> so uh, my hat's off to her. And, uh, and uh, we got it together. I uh, had a great guy named uh, Scott Lowe do, the, uh, do all the um, uh, CD mastering for mm-hmm. me. Um, and our own Kent Gordon here at Disney actually... Um, showed me how to do very high-quality quick times uh, so there's no image loss because mm-hmm. um, he's actually doing the same kind of thing uh, here for Disney's. He's actually archiving classic scenes from the Animation Research Library, right. uh, and he would show me his latest quick time, like a Frank Thomas scene of Tramp walking around in a circle, and it's like, oh, we're not worthy. And... Uh, and I, and I was stunned at how nice the image quality was. So he kind of mapped out for me the best way that I could do it. And I actually could do it on my laptop at home, oh, okay. which was wonderful. Um, I think this interview is going to come out after your book is released. But when is the release date for your book? Okay. Um, the release date is July 15th. And... Uh, Probably by the time this podcast is out, I already will have been at Comic-Con signing it at Stuart Ng. Um, But yeah, July 15th is actually the the release date. So there it is, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you that I cannot wait to get my hands on this book. Uh, If you can't make it to the Comic-Con, I have included a link in the show notes where you can order the book from Amazon. So one way or another, you should definitely get this book. Finally, I want to thank our sponsor, AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. If you're listening to this podcast before July 9th, 2008, get over to their website and sign up for their free webinar about demo reel do's and don'ts. If you missed the date, go to their website anyways, check it out, and sign up for their free monthly newsletter.
Well, we've reached the end of show 28. I will see you next time back here with Eric Goldberg. And as always, thanks for tuning in.